Don't be afraid to get fucked up What's wrong with drugs if you're already out of luck? Don't be afraid to kill someone Why should they live if they are just a fucking bomb? Don't be ashamed to get stuck You can't argue with the guys holding a sawn off Don't be ashamed if you shit your pants With the state of politics you didn't stand a fucking chance Why can't I not be escaped? G'day, how you going? Um, you are in the horse's mouth You are in the horse's mouth with John T Coming uh, coming at you on a Saturday morning Well, it's a Saturday morning for me, you know I've been up for a few hours now It takes a, a shitload long time for me to get my shit together in the morning I'm not a good morning person, you know Like I get up uh, by the time I do, you know, I've got a ritual, I do a few things, and this morning it worked out that it took me two hours before I could even get to a state of doing something else. I mean, what the fuck? But I mean, I suppose it was pretty relaxing. I mean, nothing too pressing, and it's quite self-indulgent. So, I'm um, waffling. Um, that music was brought to you by the Rubber Bones. That's the Rubber Bones. That's Nick Barnell and Braden Valance, and those guys are rocking it. I'm going to get them in soon for a chat. Um, love, love you guys. Thanks heaps. Uh, just awesome support. So, uh, today I've got Graham Jonas again. He's my very first podcast and through request, uh, to dig into Graham man a bit more, I'm, I'm hitting him up again. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a lot to him. There's a, it's, it's, there's a lot to anybody, you know, you want to talk about to someone about their life and, and it's a life. You can't compress it into an hour. You know, it's like saying to someone, what's your favorite music? And and they'll give you like something they're listening to now. Well, you know, I'm sure, well, only speaking for myself, there's, I can't label one type of music. What the hell am I talking about? Some strange metaphor for life coming to music. I don't know. But um, so look, we ha- I got Grey Man back in yesterday and had a long chat to him and awesome chat, awesome chat, such a such a great friend and, and 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 good guy, you know. Um, so look, I hope you enjoy the chat I have with Graham coming up. It's it's a little over an hour. Um, we got stuck on a couple of topics, um, but that's all right. That's okay. Now, what's going on for me this week? It's, yeah, I crushed. I cra- I craved in. I craved in. I'm I. Uh, I'm back on Tinder. <laughs> I was done. I was. I was clear, I was out, I was, I was, you know, I was in the clear and it sucked me back in. And I don't know if it's boredom or, you know, it's certainly not, maybe if I want to look down and get really, really in there under what's, what's it boiling down to, could it be loneliness? Could it be, could it be, no, I don't think so. I like to say it's just boredom, I'm just killing time, you know. Um, Yeah, goddamn Tinder, far out, what a. A strange thing that is. Um, anyway, that aside, it's been a pretty good week, so I won't waffle on too much. I'll just let we let's get into the conversation. Let's just go with it, huh? Get get into the role, get in the groove. All right. Uh, without without taking any more time, I'm going to throw you over to the conversation. All right. Fuck the haters or fight them with Glee and delve into their psyche. Get them to like me, and those who don't will get buried in the rubble path they leave behind. Mine rhymes like a bubble bath for your mind When life gets tricky, take a sickie or your neck You're not a freak if you're a financial bum Or just work hard and your chance will come Don't fret over hassles, that shit will spin your head like tassels On a stripper's tits, self-doubt It'll rip you to bits, forget
dude it's good to be here this is a nice new pads not long been in here is there a story to this house uh there is a story yeah um i have been a frequent visitor to this house for for last several months yeah and uh now i'm more or less still a visitor but on a more more days per week basis (laughs) take from that what you will um we have some very great neighbors it's a very friendly neighborhood yep um ian and betty across the street yeah who are probably approaching 90 and ian was telling me yesterday that are you on first names with ian and betty yes 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 good very friendly neighborhood couple yeah they're about mid 80s and uh, have come off the land and retired to torquay really and ian was telling me yesterday about whereabouts uh you know what i think he told me but my, uh, I'm, I think he said it was said it was said it was down it was down, it was down Port Ferry Way yeah. uh, near the the, uh, the Teague T E A G clan. I just made that up. Oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, you know, I was born down that way. Were you? Yeah, Camperdown. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's sure. a little bit of bullshit trivia for you. <laughs> I'm sure there's connection. <laughs> yeah, maybe I go over and have a chat to them. Anyway, so it's, it's a nice neighbourhood. Yeah. Very nice bloke, and then. Further down the street, I'll just tell you one more neighbour. There's a, a, a fellow called Neil. And I was going for a walk down the street a couple of weeks ago and I heard this from a big, from a great distance, this enormous bass just reverberating through this quite suburban talky street. So you went down there to have a complaint? <laughs> well, it wasn't so much a complaint, it was like curiosity. Like who, who is just doof doofing yeah. at a great decibel on a sort of Wednesday, 11 a.m.? Oh, nice. And as I walked down the street, um, I saw there's a fellow in the back of his car, Commodore, of course, mm-hmm. repairing his uh, his sound system. And I looked at it, and I, and it was it was so like a new Commodore or an old one, old school. Yeah, cool, old school, a boxy model. Uh, not that old school. Okay. <laughs> and there's a fellow leaning over in his footy shorts, plugging away on something. And I was looking at him, and it was—it was almost like it was so odd. It was actually really interesting. And he turned around. He obviously couldn't hear me standing there. The noise was so loud. Yeah. And I said, "G'day, mate." He just felt you. He felt me. <laughs> and I wandered over. We had a chat, and he said, "Yeah, I have to glue up all the seams in the car and of the boot because the vibration of the woofer has just blasted my Commodore to shit." <laughs> and uh, he went on to tell me that that uh, he's 50 and still partying like a rock star and come over and have a beer anytime. Really? Yeah. Did you get a look at the subwoofer? Yeah, I did. Where was it located in the car? In the, in the, in the boot, in the trunk. Really? Oh, it was serious. So it was a sedan. It was a sedan. Yeah. And I'm going to guess the music system was worth three or four times as much as the car was. Is. <laughs> Mo- mobile party. It was a mobile party. And this 50-year-old dude was living the dream. Awesome. Yeah. Did you get in, did you get into him? Had he been here forever? His parents. It's actually his parents' place. Yeah. And he either lives with his parents or lives next door. I couldn't. I didn't actually quite figure that out. Yeah. But his parents. His dad wandered out. His dad's probably about a hundred. Uh, yeah. Nice guy. Good day. Good day. Old Greek guy. So the, the lawn is all concrete. Yeah. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> yeah. But super friendly. Super friendly people. Statues. Statues. <laughs> no statues, but plenty of plenty of columns on the balustrades yeah. of the house yeah, and, yeah, and just yeah. a lot of concrete. Old school style. 
old school. Yeah, awesome. Forever. Awesome. Maybe Neil would be a good uh, subject. To yeah, talk Neil to. could be a good chat. Could be a good chat. I'd like to get into the uh, finer detail of a subwoofer. <laughs> um, yeah, right. Far out. So, well, it's a pretty nice house. Yeah, a bitch to heat. Yeah, the heating's an issue, huh? Oh, I've been freezing to death. Because? Mainly because I'm a tight ass. I don't want to turn the heat on. Mm. <laughs> I've changed my mind, though. Dude, it's so cold. It is so cold. So, Graham, Jonas, we're back because of popular demand. You know, people want to know more about the, uh, the grey man and feel that I let you off has been a little bit aloof late last time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And because there's a lot to you, you know, I know you like to sidestep a lot of how, how, you know, things that you've done. Yeah. Yeah. Milestones that you've tracked over. Right. Kept tracking places you've been. So did you study here or abroad? Uh, I studied here. Mm. Good, good segue because I was about to try and interrupt the flow of where you're going but before i could you took us where you wanted to go well it wasn't <laughs> anything but just wondering where you started you're getting good at this <laughs> where did you study i studied at melbourne uni yeah nice. back in the 90s early 90s really which was a while ago now wasn't it 20 years ago yeah and uh rage against the machine was strong yes stone roses mm-hmm. and the old pub bands of the 80s were still lingering yeah some of the painters and dockers and those guys were, you know, they were old at that point, but they were still, they were still relevant. Ganga Jang? Ganga Jang, still relevant, yeah, they over from the 80s. Who was that one, the Choir Boys? Yep, yeah, what did they sing? They were big. Run to paradise. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was their one, that was it. Right. I remember we were building a jail in Dubbo and the Choir Boys came to town and, uh, and it was just like, you know, everyone was freaking out because of that one song. You were building a jail in Dubbo and the choir boys came to town. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to put that on loop. <laughs> yep. It was a pretty big night, that one. Yeah. Uh, didn't take much to get excitable working up there. Mm, fair enough. Anyway. Um, so, so, yeah. So, actually... Actually, you studied at Melbourne University. What yeah, did you study? I studied commerce. Yeah. And... Uh, Which is... Commerce is finance, accounting bit of economics commerce is how money and everything is traded yeah as a catch-all term as, as uh in society and internationally mm. so commerce is everything under an umbrella that is tradable yeah if if melbourne uni didn't want to sound as fancy as they'd like to think they are they would have called it maybe basics of business or the fundamentals of business or something that's what they would have said to me yeah so all right yeah (laughs) (laughs) but what's interesting as i as i look back at melbourne uni days yeah melbourne uni still is and certainly was then considered to be one of the better universities in australia Mm -hmm. and i have learned subsequent because at the time i had no no benchmark in which to compare my experience or quality of teaching given that it was such a different environment to high school, mm-hmm. um, how poor quality some aspects of that education was. And I say that because in the last couple of years, I have got on to a couple of online um, university courses, mm-hmm. 
that are of the, no, I think they call it MOOC, Massive Open, whatever, courseware, mm-hmm. where universities such as Harvard and MIT, who have always had reputations of being at the upper echelon of world learning institutions, have basically put a lot of their, their university subject content online with fairly fairly evolved video and interactive programs so you can follow a lecture series. And when I look at some of these these subjects and the professors and the, the way that the course is taught, I think, holy shit. What I, re- what I enjoyed 20 years ago at Melbourne Uni, I probably had one or two or maybe three professors who had this sort of presence, this sort of intellect, this sort of quality programming. But the rest of them, all the other... 20 of the rest of well, so B grade, C grade, in fact, C grade. And this is Melbourne Uni, which is one of our premier institutions. Mm. And here I am getting well off topic. No, that's good. Something I think about a lot. And this is obviously not new ideas, but I sort of saw it in action when I did these Yale and Harvard courses online. This hex argument that we have in this country, well, six months ago was a huge debate. Hex is too much and kids are in debt. The real truth of it, within five to ten years, Australian universities, for the most part, will be flat out of business. Do you really think so? Yeah. And the reason I say that is, if you can have access to the quality of education of a Harvard or an MIT, and let's just for the sake of argument, I, I believe it to be true, but for the sake of argument, let's accept that they are the preeminent education institutions in the world. Mm. If I'm a young kid coming out of high school and I've got a choice of going to Melbourne or Monash or Deakin or La Trobe or, or wherever and having a fairly hefty hex debt for my trouble. Like how much? How much is hex? How, yeah, roughly. Uh, well, it's getting up there these days. I don't know. 100,000? They say it's 100,000 for a medical slash science degree. Okay. A commerce degree is probably less, but let's say it's 30 or 40. I don't know. Pick a number. E- even if it's 10, if I can get a better quality education from the likes of Harvard or MIT through a through a internet platform mm-hmm. and pay next to nothing for it because really the marginal cost of these services is close to zero. Mm. Why would I pay a lot of money for an inferior quality education? Mm. And you could say, well, the argument is that, you know, there's a social aspect of university life that is very important. There's an organisation there. A rite of passage. A rite of passage, yep. And, and that's also, that's all very true. But then you might say, well, there's, what might develop is alternative organisational structures where somebody's doing this online course based out of the US, but there's a system in place where through social media and other network connections that you can have that group learning experience, but the content is provided from overseas. Because ultimately what we're paying Melbourne Uni for and these other uni for is the professor and the forum the structure, and the, stru- the but the structure, if the structure can be replicated cheaply, which are, is complex but possible, then the professor and the and the lecture theatre is what you're paying your forty grand for, mm. and and if the professor is not up to scratch, what's the point? Yeah, I I wouldn't I would struggle though. I mean, at a young age, if I was to go to uni, I, I'd need structure. Yes, and I'd need to that FaceTime. Because me left to my own devices. Yes. Uh, uh, not so disciplined. Yes. Maybe a little bit more nowadays. <laughs> a little bit more. A little bit more. A little bit more. Um, but I know then it wouldn't be happening. But that's, look, that's not, that's not everybody. 
Mm. There's a lot of people out there who are very driven who thrive no matter what it is because they know what they want from a young age. Yeah. But if I said to you, John, as an 18-year-old high school graduate... Uh, fuck yeah, mate. What do you want? <laughs> you're going down this pathway where you can pay 40 grand for your hex experience mm. or let's take that 40 grand mm. and let's see how we can spend it in different ways. Let's say we give, we pay Harvard two grand for their, or less, probably less, but some small number for their course content. Mm. Then we've got 38 grand to spend on John Teague's personal chaperone slash life coach slash tutor slash what to get you out of bed, to get you to class, to help you organize things. And I would say that there'll be people out there who provide this service who, who for maybe five grand or 10 grand over the course of a three year sub uh, series, they would be there to help you do everything you need to do and and uh, and be as productive as you can be. Like a personal assistant? Yeah. I mean, what I'm saying is for, there's so much so much cost involved in the traditional educational model. Yeah, yeah I see. That you can actually spend a little bit of it and save a lot of it to to get a an outcome. Oh, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, especially if you're 18 and she was hot. I'm But then, what where this leads to? Yeah. And this, I think, is the most interesting part, and this is where the political slash social equation is will be most challenging. Mm. And that is, if you look at a the the young people of Australia being educated by foreign institutions. That is where the big cultural question arises. If it's Melbourne Uni or Deakin or whatnot, then that's an Australian forum, an Australian influence. Certainly there's lots of international exchange in these institutions, which is great and it's part of the experience, but they're fundamentally reflective of our values. If you've got a bunch of kids doing liberal arts courses, you know, philosophy and social structures and political science and whatnot, but they're being taught by American institutions or maybe British institutions or who knows, maybe Chinese institutions or mm. maybe Saudi Arabian institutions, mm -hmm. then you've basically lost, our society has lost control of the education of our young and the education of our young, really, they progress to become our society. That worries me. <sighs> Shit, all right. So your solution being... <laughs> my solution i don't actually have a solution to that because this will this but what i think is possible the argument that we i have just don't see universities being phased out yeah I, I agree it's 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 an incredibly confronting possibility yeah well i mean i suppose you can't say never on anything nobody ever sees anything coming mm. and all of a sudden you're in a hole if so, yeah. like, yeah, I get it. But, yeah, wow. Yeah. So, all right. Yep. I see where you're going. You and I studied theatre and acting in an American school. Yeah. And we brought back that skill and those ideas and that training to this country. And I think that's what we call, traditionally, a positive exchange of ideas. Right. When it simply becomes every kid who's learning anything has been learned you know, I'm sorry, repeating the same concept, but your question was, could it ever happen? But it's happening now. I mean, people come from all countries to study here and people go to all other countries to study everything because in their own country, especially third world countries, they don't yeah. have the education structure and yeah. those that can get grants or scholarships or have money in those countries leave. Yes. So it is happening. Yes. All right. 
Yep. Yeah, go on. No, I'm going to cut you off there. Let's go. You, you go. <laughs> Final point, then I'll shut up. Yeah, go. Stop banging on. The, the other extraordinary consequence, if this pathway does in fact continue the way it's going, then what I'm suggesting will happen, is that if you're a kid in a third world country such as Bangladesh or parts of India or anywhere in Africa, right, your access to education right now is limited, very limited. You may not have a classroom, you may not have a teacher, you may not have an intelligent teacher, you may have to work in the fields, blah, blah, blah. And a lot of the advocacy work in sort of foreign aid and foreign social work is all about education for kids. Give them up to eat, give them up healthcare, give them education. In the future, and probably not too distant future, all that kid needs in order to have a Harvard slash MIT slash Yale first class education, all he needs is ability to understand English and or Chinese or wherever the education material coming out of and an internet connection. But couldn't they feasibly just make all the, the curriculum to the specific language of... True, true, they could, but yes, yes, and that's probably not that difficult. However, it's pre-existing off the shelf, no incremental cost to Harvard in English to share it as is. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden... Kids who grew up in Australia who today have an extraordinary advantage over any other kid in the rest of the world in that they have the benefit of our health and our education system. So they grow up, go to school, leave school, maybe go to university, maybe not, but they're educated, they're a capable, productive workforce as a result of education. And that's been a great great benefit to the countries of the first world, apart from our resource strength and so forth. All of a sudden, in a generation or so, Kitty's going to grow up in Australia and every kid around the world, Bangladesh, India, the millions and billions of kids will all have the same quality, access to the same quality education. As they should. Well, as they should, exactly. But let's just take that moral principle of as they should Mm -hmm. and apply it to what occurs in the real world. You'll have a billion kids entering the workforce, all of the same educational standard, but the kids in Bangladesh have a willingness to work for, pick a number, $10 a day, whereas kids in Australia want, pick a number, $200 a day. Tell you who's, who's going to get the job because in an interconnected online world, you can outsource these things to wherever. Those kids in Bangladesh will get the job all day long. So you'll have an army of kids in Australia who are no smarter than kids in Bangladesh but demanding 20 times the pay and you'll hear the great sucking sound as all the work goes across overseas, which, as you say, so they should, that's great. But the end result is you'll have a great levelling of income and living standards around the world. Now, great, as they should, that's mm-hmm. good. But <laughs> the dirty secret implicit in that, and this, this forces us to confront our own selfishness, which we in the West we love to deny that we're selfish, but we absolutely are. Oh, fuck yeah, yeah. Not so much you and me, but as no, a whole, yeah, yeah, as, a, yeah, as, a, yeah. as a whole, as yeah. a society, if you take all the wealth in the world and instead of giving 90% of that wealth spread between Australia and Canada and the US and England and Europe and a few other handful of countries, a few Arabs who rule Saudi Arabia, divide that wealth not by a few hundred million, several hundred million people that are the first world, but seven billion people or more, that is the entire world, on a per capita basis there's actually not a lot of money per person compared to our lofty standards. Mm-hmm. And the living standards that we enjoy in this country, Australia, by simple mathematical analysis, 
will fall precipitously because we're literally sharing the wealth that we've previously enjoyed selfishly at the expense of the rest of the world. Okay, so but uh, don't you think we're living in an inflated uh, economy as it is? Like everything is way too much like housing. I don't understand yeah. how. I mean, I dropped twenty dollars this morning <laughs> on a bowl of porridge and a fucking smoothie, man. What? Yeah, <laughs> like are you kidding? You just got twenty fancy bucks. Yuppie that's, places. That's breaking. Yeah, right. This is bullshit. Mm. People live off that for a fucking month. Yes. If you, you know, it's ridiculous, but they do. Yep. Um, the Australian economy is just So incredible. might that be the big leveller of putting the, bringing the economy back to where it should be? Why are we, why are we so much more expensive than America? We are way off topic. Why are yeah. we, but anyway, there's that. But then, okay, going back to what you just said, Abbott is bringing in a thing. I mean, I don't know. I hear this secondhand. Yep. Because I'm, I'm, I just don't want to put my head into that. But Abbott, I hear, is bringing in a legislation for China at the moment, yeah. which is allowing Chinese corporate companies to come here and bring their own labor. And that means it's always been they can bring their corporate work here, but they had to use our labor. Do you know about this? Yes. And is this true? Yes, I've read well, about this. This feeding into what you're saying now. Yeah, it, it, you're right. This is the, one of, the, I guess, one step in that direction. Um, yeah, I think there was a bilateral trade deal with China recently, and this was a, a part of it. And I guess, unfortunately, in the media, you get the sort of the headlines, which are sensationalist, and you're never, never quite sure how to connect the headline to the reality of the trade agreement, and you've got to go and read the document to understand it, which we haven't done. But um, I, I think if you're in Tony Abbott's position, if you're, if you're in a political, position of political leadership in this country or position of corporate leadership in this country... Is that the same thing? Uh, well, I'd say... Oh, yeah, sorry, they're very closely correlated... Yeah, good point, good point. But maybe unlike, say, the US, where the, those in political power in Washington seem to have a revolving door between Washington and the corporates of New York and the rest of the country, Australia, I think, has less of a revolving door. We probably seem to have more career politicians who go up through the ranks. Like, Tony Abbott's been doing this forever. Yeah. I mean, as Barack Obama did, but a lot of the people that work for the president are appointed by the president. They're not elected by the people mm -hmm. so those appointees who are effectively like our ministers i guess um they cycle in and out okay so but then you've got obama appoints his team yes but then obama wants to change a rule and then it has to go up against the republicans right and they hold the seats in the yeah. senate yeah they, the congress the, con the senate like mm. i mean what's that got to do with anything you know, I don't, I, and we are way off. I don't understand. <laughs> I just don't understand that part anyway. But yeah, right, keep going with your we'll, point. We'll just go back to the, the China, the Chinese trade agreement. Yeah. And if you're, if you're in a political position of political power or corporate power, your incentive, your very strong incentive, and th these guys, Tony Abbott and the leaders of the corporates, they're regular people, more or less, like the rest of us. And they're working according to the environment in which they exist and the incentives the sticks and the carrots which push them along in the directions that they go. So if you're if you're running a mine out in somewhere or an agricultural business or any other business, you look at your, your business and you plan to minim, enter a good uh, a business area, which is a you know a place where you think you make money. You look to minimise your costs and maximise your sales and maximise your profit. Mm -hmm. One of the big cost factors you face is is labour costs. 
and you look to minimize those costs. Fair enough. You might run up against a workforce that says, you know what, we're unionized or we're educated people or whatnot, and this is what we're worth. Great. But then you say, all right, under this trade agreement, we can bring in people from China to fill these spots. Now, we might advertise in the paper and have a trade, have a, a employment fair and say, oh, we can't find people with these skills, which is, you know, the Australian union movement has been saying this forever, that the whole 457 visa thing is a rot designed to to sort of, if not take jobs from Australians, but at least to lower the lower the sort of pressure on wage increases and lower the pressure on work standards and, uh, sorry, work safety standards, for example, and also make it easy to fire people and whatnot. It's more complex than my brain is, had, is around, but that's sort of directly what it's, what it's doing. And if you're Tony, Tony Abbott and you've got Gina Reinhardt in your ear or Rupert Murdoch in your ear or whatnot, you're looking after the political leadership slash corporate leadership structures, which are, hey, we've got to keep costs down. Um, so bringing in some sort of uh, some, some labour from China helps them do that. Now, it's dressed up as, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a righty from way back, but in this notion, I think there's things that occur which are sort of, it's deemed necessary by those in power to not really share the full story with the populace because the populace is not deemed smart enough to understand the big picture benefit of whatever this is. And the big picture benefit arguably might be that, you know, if labor costs get out of hand, then business investment slows and therefore the entire economy suffers, therefore everybody suffers. If that's not kept in check um, and you go too far the other way, then, you know, you end up with a bunch of whiteys out of work and a bunch of Chinese kids running the economy and, you know, yeah, man. Fuck. Right. I don't know where to go with this one. <laughs> <laughs> I've just very successfully deflected the conversation from... No, you haven't. I'm aware of what you're doing. Um, but I'm just... I'm at a loss, you know? It's just... With that, I am at a loss. I, you know, the, the masking of truths, mm. the lack of transparency with our government, with yep. most governments, is what I'm at a loss with is what more I should be saying. Yeah, I get it. And that's what gets me hot under the collar. Do you, do you think that our society as a whole can be trusted with the truth? Is actually... Yes. Yes? Yeah. So, But it'd fuck up a lot of people. <laughs> and I, maybe the sicko in me would like says yes because I would like to be exposed to a few more things that I'm pretty sure is going on that, yeah. you know, that let people sleep at night a little easier thinking that everything's okay. And I really don't think that we are driving this earth in a direction that no. is okay. Well, in that case, well, that's a great example of, of, I mean, Australia is a democracy. America is a democracy. Europe is, a, is democratic. These nations, these, that region, these regions and nations have been given what you and I might consider as the truth about, for example, global warming. Yet, these democracies have not taken that information and done anything with it that you and I would consider as a reasonable response to what this threat of global warming represents. And in that failing, I would say that it's a truth that... I mean, when we say trusted with it, trusted is maybe not the right word, but we have not actually done the right thing. We're not actually we have we have breached the trust of doing the right thing when pre presented with information. Man, I give you thirty cases where the U.S. government have done that. They've failed us as a fucking 
as a global leader yeah. failed. But, but what's behind the nice US country, good people, <laughs> fun times. Well, these good people voted in that US government. Uh, did they, though? Did they? Did they. Okay. Well, yeah. this is interesting. Well, look at Bush. It was proven that that was jerry-rigged down in, the, uh, in that last dying thing. In Florida? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I get that. But, but okay, say, say Florida was a bit of a conspiracy. Yeah. Except, take that, accept that, but... So George Bush got 50.01% of the vote or whatever it was. And yeah. What's his name? Gore got 49.99. Yeah. Well, 50% more or less of the electorate voted for George Bush. Yeah. And if that wasn't bad enough, four years later, more than 50% <laughs> voted for him again. Yeah, I know. Presented with information that WMD was a hoax perpetrated upon the world. That is actually the point in time that I lost my faith in democracy. Weapons of mass destruction was a hoax. Yeah. I mean, what else? I don't want to start because I'm already, I'm already labelled a conspiracy theorist, um, which shits me up the fucking wall because I have you tell you, know, a conspiracy is so you conspire to get anywhere. It's a thought that you follow through on. Right. Say that again. To a conspiracy yeah. is a thought, a thought that you follow through on. So, yeah, well, I conspired to have you make me a cup of tea before. Would you like another one? I'm good for the moment, thanks. I'm gonna... <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Okay. Because a conspiracy is a bunch of thoughts. Right. Okay. A plan. A plan, yeah. Okay. Which starts as a thought. Yeah. And is followed through on. Yeah. So if you conspire to do something, then, you know. Yeah. So conspiracy is a shit word. Yeah, it's been the the meaning has been, I guess, co-opted. It's in, too easy to get conspiracy theory. Like, fuck yeah, off. Gotcha. It's a knee-jerk response. Do some homework, you fucking. Yeah, good point. It's it's too easy to dismiss a challenging thought by saying, "Oh, that person's full of shit." Yeah, and the 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 newspaper tells me otherwise, and that's what helps me sleep at night. Yeah, got, gotcha. And people don't thank you for interrupting their night's sleep. No, no, people want to think everything's okay, and the yeah. government has our best interests at heart. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so you studied at Melbourne <laughs> University, Grey Man, and yes. we could go on about that all day. So you graduated. Yep. Commerce. Commerce. Got a uh, got a job at a firm called Price Waterhouse in Melbourne. In Melbourne. Yeah. Price Waterhouse. Mm-hmm. Worked for them for a couple of years in their insolvency department. Jeez, that was a big loop to this point, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And. Uh, and what were you doing there? Well, it was the insolvency department, which oh, okay. does corporate liquidations and corporate uh, receiverships. Basically, when a business gets into financial difficulty yeah. and they're either insolvent, requiring a, a sort of professional go in there and sort of clean up the mess and shut things down, or, for example, a bank has lent some company some money and they're sort of worried about their interest, their loan to the company, so they send in the receiver to sort of manage things and keep an eye out for their best interests. So that's essentially what happened in New York a few years ago. It could have gone either way. They just threw a whole bunch of money at it. To, the receiver went in instead of the cleaner. You mean the whole country? Yeah, with the, <laughs> with the GFC. Yeah, for sure. In a bigger scale. They did. The government went in with their receivers. Their wolf. Yeah. The wolf receiver. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, good analogy. True. True, true. Anyway, okay, so that's what you're doing on a smaller scale for 
businesses. Yeah. yeah and I learned a lot. It was very interesting. It was sort of the tail end of the insolvency boom, which had been sort of big two or three years earlier. Um, but it was super interesting to see how that worked. And a lot of lessons I learned were that these... Uh, <laughs> ever since then, I've had a very limited respect for, for, for insolvency practitioners and lawyers because what they do very well... And I work with a lot of good people, don't get me wrong, even some sort of very moral people. But <laughs> as an industry, as a profession, mm. they feast on the carcass of failed businesses or struggling businesses and they go in there with the cloak of we're here to clean up the mess we're the mr wolf we're the good guys um but again talking about incentives and what what their daily drivers are they're guys trying to make a living and they make a living by charging fees against this struggling business and oftentimes they don't walk in there with the view that okay, let's see what we can save here. We can do. Let's see if we can do it. Help the bank or help the creditors or help help the business. They go in there thinking, what can I do to help myself? How can I, how can I, uh, how can I extract maximum fee revenue from this situation? And it's a very grey area. And it's very. Uh, they, they a lot of those guys will argue till they're blue in the face and swear on the Bible that what they're doing is in the best interest of the entity they're working with. But it's all, all, it was always a little bit fishy and it took 20 years for this, my views on this to be crystallised or at least evidenced when there was a case in South Australia last year where a fellow took on the, uh, the insolvency profession and the legal profession in Adelaide, which is sort of a closed shop. You know, think old boys, old school networks in Melbourne are strong. Adelaide, it's like... A smaller town and the network is even stronger why how come is it an older city no it's just this i mean i've only been there a couple of times i don't know a lot about it but as i understand it it's a bunch of prissy people who sort of live 50 years ago mm. and uh and think themselves so snooty and superior because adelaide was not founded by convicts <laughs> it wasn't i believe it was not who the fuck was it then well a bunch of free settlers who thought 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 the middle of the Great Australian Bight was a great place to put a city and they've never quite <laughs> admitted to themselves that maybe in hindsight <laughs> it wasn't such a great place. <laughs> yeah. Shit. I didn't know that. <laughs> I thought we just convicts were everywhere. <laughs> I could be wrong, but that's my understanding. Well, anyway, you can smoke dope there freely. Actually, yeah. Credit to them. They were the first state to go down that path. Huh. Anyway, yeah. So, yeah, he, this guy took on the, the big shots. So this, this fellow, his name's John... Viscarello, Viscariello, and about 12 years ago, his business went, got into difficulty. And the receivers came in, or the liquidators came in, the lawyers came in, and there was some value in the business. I can't remember the numbers, say there was a million dollars or $2 million or half a million dollars. And they proceeded just to help themselves to fees. And then they proceeded to try and shut the business down, shake their hand, dust their hands off, that's it, move on. They've earned some good money. Well, they didn't count on that this fellow saw what they were doing and said, what the F is going on? This is my business and you guys are just pillaging. You're not helping, you're pillaging. So what he did, he, he had a law degree. So he was able actually to run a legal case against these guys himself at no, no sort of external expense. I mean, it took a lot of time. And but, so he's able to launch this, this case against them. But what he didn't count on was the establishment of Adelaide all sort of closing the wagons against him. So... Every step of he took, he had this immense force weighed against him. And it would have crushed anybody. 
any lesser person would have just given up and walked away. So they away. saw what was at stake here and they went, we have to shut this fucker down. They collaborated. Yes, but, but probably in a less explicit way. I mean, for them, it was par for the course. Somebody gets upset. They're like, you know, what are you going to do about it, buddy? Yeah. Um, so I don't think it surprised them that the guy was upset. Mm. They were probably a little surprised that he started to take them on. But, that, but again, par for the course. They'll, you know, they'll know he ran out of patience, ran out of money, ran out of time. Someone will tell him to get on with his life, do something else. They didn't bank on them beating him at every turn and him just getting back up off the mat and going again and again. This went on for 12 years. Oh, wow. Maybe 13 years. And then finally, last year... Geez, some people would be just like, just let it go. Yeah, you're right, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, Good on him. Yeah, 13 years later, yeah. finally went to the Supreme Court of South Australia, the Chief Justice the Supreme Court of South Australia handed down a, a ruling, a verdict, and basically said, this guy has been right all along. The establishment legal profession, establishment insolvency profession has basically been corrupt, craven, um, abuse of every, every one of their professional sort of privileges and breach of all their ethics and whatnot. And uh, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> he hosed funny. them. Did he get a mighty payout? I don't, I, don't, I don't remember what the number was. I don't think he did. I don't think he did. Better tell you what, he's sleeping easy now. I hope he is. Oh, man. 13 years? It was such a price to pay. I mean, I, I, I'm, I actually still might do it. He's the sort of guy that should start one of these online funding accounts and every two-bit idiot like me who's followed his, his story will donate some money and actually might make some money in that, in that regard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so this guy was the, the, the wake up to tell you that you were right on your thoughts to the business at Pricewaterhouse. Well, let, me just, let me just clarify. Pricewaterhouse <laughs> was never anything in that level. No, uh, yeah, right. Okay, There's a lot yeah. of good people there and we did yeah. some good things. But, but that's the nature of incentives. And I guess going back to Tony Abbott and Gina Reinhart bringing in Chinese workers, mm. they'll tell you to the blue in the face that they're doing the right thing. And you know what? They might actually, if you put electrodes on their nipples, they might actually swear that they are doing the right thing. They believe they're doing the moral thing. Mm -hmm. But incentives are so twisted and powerful that you get negative outcomes without people even quite realizing what they're doing, mm. I mm. think. No, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, most people are brainwashed to believe that they're doing the right thing. That's why it helps them sleep. That's why yeah. people don't want other information coming in. Yeah. It's information they have works. Yeah. Yeah, let's not disrupt the Africa. Um, all right, so then you're working there, then you left. So they 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 actually said uh, this was in the early mid '90s when every guy my every guy and girl my age was sort of going to Europe and doing the sort of backpacking and work contract thing because the UK economy was paying such great wages for qualified commerce people. Yeah. So I thought I'll do that too, and so I said to my boss, I said, uh, you know, I'd like to go to London, please. Can you arrange a transfer? thinking that he wouldn't be able to do it. And if he, if he then said no, I would say, well, thank you for trying, I appreciate it, and I resign, I'm going to do what everybody else is doing. He came back to me and he said, oh, look, sorry about London, we're not getting along with London office right now. Uh, would you like to go to New York instead? <laughs> sort of, you know, knocked me on my back, like, what, New York? And New York right, so it wasn't really a planned out move. No, not at all. Wow, yeah, okay, go on. This is great. And New York, New York was obviously a known quantity at that stage, but not the same way it's known today. You know, we all looked to Europe and London, not to New York, for all things travel-related and even work-related. Yeah. 
So well, it was a different city back then. It was hostile and mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the mean streets. Yeah, I mean it was for different. Real. For real. Um, but anyway, I had a, had a couple of mates who were over there, and uh, I spoke to them and said, you know, what's this? What's it like? And they were like, get your ass trackside right away. This is the place to be. Really? Yeah. So I said, all right, off I went. What year was that? That was uh, shit, ninety seven, ninety eight. Yeah. Yeah. So you flew into New York all green. All green and never been there before? Never. Shut up. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have this experience, but it was nonetheless supremely powerful for me, is being in a taxi from JFK Airport into the city. And you might have had this experience as well. I'd love to hear what you have to say. But there's a point on the Long Island Expressway, the freeway into the city, where you turn a corner and you see the expanse of Manhattan, top to bottom these enormous buildings, World Trade Center back then, the Empire State, Chrysler Building, Citibank Building. And it's all so wonderfully familiar because you've seen it in movies a thousand times, you've seen it in TV series a thousand times. And it's like a homecoming yeah. to a city you've never actually set foot in before. And it, it sort of blew my socks off yeah. at, that, at that point in time. So did you get there and go straight to work or did you get there and have time before you started work? Uh... I got there and I think I went to work pretty quickly but the HR person in Melbourne who had coordinated the whole thing had fucked it up royally and the department I was meant to go into had never heard of me and said we don't want you oh no <laughs> yeah they, she might have she might have told me of the, the the cock up you know the two days before I left and said well you can stay you can go and I was like well I'm going you know Oh, okay. So it wasn't exactly yeah, right. wasn't it wasn't a shock on the day, but nonetheless, yeah. it was it was a bit of a you know I sort of turned up to a desk and had nothing to do for a few weeks, which was good for a week and then boring as hell after that. Anyway, so that gave me time to get an apartment and get settled and take a breath. So I guess that was that was great. Then I went and knocked on the door of the department that didn't want me and convinced them to give me a shot, which they did. And uh, yes, yeah, so that was all good. So how long did you work for that department for? Two years. Okay. Two years. Yeah. And uh, th they, they were a group doing what they call middle market M&A. And what that means is small companies, small private companies who are sort of buying and selling things and they do sort of business advisory work, assistance. And that was good fun. It was, it was super hard work because this little department within Pricewaterhouse, within an accounting firm, had enormous chip on their shoulder that they were part of an accounting firm and not part of a, a bank which generally did these things so because of that chip they seemed to work twice as hard for half the pay <laughs> just to try and make up for it but good people and good fun and uh, I was there for a couple of years until until there was a merger where Pricewaterhouse merged with another firm called Coopers and as part of the merger my boss in New York said oh listen the Coopers department that's equivalent to ours is based in Washington, D.C. And uh, as part of the sort of integration, we need to sort of swap some staff between offices. And we've selected you to go down to Washington, D.C. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? Why me? He said, oh, you know, because you're, you're not from here anyway and you don't have a family or kids here. or So, you know, it's going to be easy for you to yeah. go down to yeah. D.C. Yeah. And I said, well, listen, dude, I didn't leave 
Melbourne, Australia, which is pretty much a, on many levels a fucking great city, to go anywhere but New York, maybe London, but not definitely not Washington DC. So, so two months later, I left them yeah. and uh, got a job. You didn't the, look at like a possibility of like a massive pay. He, no, he that wasn't on the table. He, he he did convince me to go and give it a give it a try, yeah. and I went down there to ostensibly give it a, sensibly give it a try. I oh, you did? You actually went to Washington? Yeah. Oh, yeah? Well, I think I was commuting. I go down there for, you know, I was meant to go down there on Monday and come back on Friday. And uh, Monday to Friday became sort of Monday to Thursday, became Tuesday to Thursday. <laughs> it, was just, it was just a shithole. Yeah. They, they were in, they, their office was in an area of D.C. called Tyson's Corner, which is actually in the state of Virginia, but it's all sort of part of the same metropolis. And uh, they put me up. They said, oh, you're going to stay in the Ritz-Carlton. It's really nice. So I was in this fancy hotel that was above one of the biggest shopping malls in the area. And I go down this elevator, walk through the hotel, walk through a mall. It'll take me 10 minutes. I get to the edge of the mall and I have to cross a six-lane highway. (laughs) And it was so fucking wide that you'd sort of press the button, wait five minutes, walk, get halfway across. The lights would change. You wait another five minutes in the middle of this the highway 12 lanes 12 lanes just chaos <laughs> maybe it was six total i don't know it was right. massive yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, 12 sounds about right <laughs> then you finally at the other side and you get to work just like <gasps> <laughs> need a valium need a valium and then you know all my colleagues had lived in the suburbs with their families and they'd get into work at nine and leave at five and talk about their kids and i was like what the hell am i doing this is the worst anyway so so yeah, so that was that. Had to get out of there. Got out of Dodge, yeah. Okay, Dodge. sounds like a good traffic move. Then what happened? So then, uh, it's actually it's actually a bit of a laugh. The process of leaving this job, it was in the. This was back in sort of ninety nine, two thousand, when getting visas to work in the US was actually kind of problematic because of the dot com boom, the the quota of visas given to foreigners was being used up by everybody from around the world trying to get into the US to work, so the new bank I went to work for had some fancy lawyers and pulled some Swifties and got me some sort of training visa. So on one of the Mondays when I should have been in DC working, which I never was, I flew up to Canada, went to the American embassy in Canada, applied for this particular visa, got it, flew back to New York the next day, went in to see my boss on the Wednesday and said, oh, look, I'm resigning. And he he cracked it and said, how dare you? you know, we've given you so many opportunities and you've just betrayed that trust and that investment in you. And I was like, what the fuck, dude? You tried to send me to DC. <laughs> and this guy was the most mercenary, mercenary business person I'd ever, ever come across. So for right. him to say him, he was just yeah. beyond the pale. Yeah. And, uh, and he said, you know, I want you out of here by Friday. Pack your bag, get the hell out of here by Friday. And it was Wednesday. And when he said that to me with such sort of... <laughs> such a soapbox faux sort of outrage I, I had to say well actually under terms of my visa I really shouldn't even be here today so I'll be leaving right after this meeting <laughs> oh, how do you take that did you just watch the steam come out steam. from the collar yeah. steam but then the postscript was that two months after I left this same fucker excuse my language, the same mother effer. You can swear, Graham. The same day. motherfucker yeah. left himself two months later. So oh, no, really? He's the head guy. If he leaves in two months later, he's been planning this for six months. Yeah. 
So he was complete, compl- not only a hypocrite, he was just a liar. Yeah, well, you stole liar. his thunder a little bit. I stole his thunder a little bit. <laughs> and so that's so, what I want to be doing. <laughs> two months later, he left. And then another six months after that, he turned up at the same bank I was at. Shut up. Shut up. Absolutely. And did you work with him again? Yeah, we, we were in, he was in a depart- separate department, but related. And the guys I was working for at that stage, I was working with, um, you know, had this him coming along as a sort of a new team member. And that's, I said, oh, yeah, that's my old boss. They said, oh, what's he like? And, yeah. You threw him under the bus. I tried not to throw him under the bus. Right. But so. in the moment, I paused. I hesitated before I even said a word. And then I said something that was neutral slash trying to be nice. Yeah. But but, were they reading the sly grin on your lips? I, tr- I tried to hold it in and made the statement more powerful. Okay. So. Yeah. Crafty. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah. So the, what you were doing, who, what was this company? This uh, was a bank. You worked bank. for an evil bank. Yes. Jesus Christ. And you thought, buddy, Price of Waterhouse was evil. How was that experience? I think they were actually... I know you didn't really think Price of Waterhouse was evil. Was a, no, not an evil. But, no. but it's actually interesting how... S- organizations social groupings can can have a character moral immoral bullies not bullies whatever which is as a collective different from any particular character trait that you can that you can apply to the individuals that make up that collective and that is that is extraordinary and that's you know that's a part of human nature and social structures or social organizations which i find absolutely fascinating because I, I would not say that Anybody at Price Waterhouse was was at all immoral, right? At all, mm. I think they're all to a to a person, pretty good people. Mm. And I'd say at this bank, for the most part, that's true as well. But I had the experience of in my first week there, they weren't like all everyone was an American psycho. <laughs> that is hardly true at all. Uh-huh. Um, so they're all a lot like Osti, just big cuddly bears. <laughs> Just running around with a bunch of money, just smiling at everyone. Oasty's a special case. <laughs> Shout out to you, Oasty. <laughs> he is. Uh, yeah, go on. In my first week there, they sort of get you working pretty hard right away. And sort of, but because I didn't have any allocated teams or clients, I'd sort of drift around for a, few, a week or two or a few days. And on sort of day three, I was working for a lady who had been there for a while, who was experienced and had some stuff going on. And I was doing some analysis of something or other. And I was looking at it and it made absolutely no sense to me at all, except for the fact that I had experience in insolvency and had some general understanding of how these things worked. And I took it to her and I said, listen, I just started here two days ago, so I don't know anything. But I will tell you that there's something really shaded going on here. And the shadiness was that the C. FO, the chief financial officer of a client of the bank, mm-hmm. had put forward a proposal to the bank, mm-hmm. and the bank had maybe helped him put it together, but he was the guy who was pushing it along, where some financial shenanigans would go on, and the end result of financial shenanigans was that a bunch of liabilities, debts of the client would be hived off into a separate entity, off their balance sheet which makes their company look healthy than yeah, it is yeah 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 so it's hiding information not transparent yes correct mm-hmm. and at the same time as that occurring the cfo 
would earn over the course of the several years that this structure would be in place some tens of millions of dollars. And I said to the it's lady... It's pretty ballsy to t you know, try and put some spotlight on this grey area. Yep. And as I said it to this lady, and I'm not trying to be... I mean, she and I were working together. I was on her side, the bank side. I said, listen, this is just... this is." If anything I've ever seen, this is the shadiest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> I probably wasn't that strong, but that was the direction I was. Yeah. Was yeah. And I, but at the same time, I said, I just started here two days ago. I don't want to shake anything, ruffle any feathers. She said, okay, yeah, no worries. It's all right. I said, oh, okay, cool. And then I was on to the next thing and didn't, didn't sort of look back or think about it much again until a couple of years later when Enron blew up. And this is one of the deals that caused Enron to blow up and a bunch of people to go to jail. Shut up. Yeah. And you were the first one to cotton onto it? Well, <laughs> I probably shouldn't say it too loud since my, my cottoning arm was so quiet. But um, yeah, it was extraordinary because, and I would say this, this, this lady who was then, she was never charged with anything. Yeah. But a lot of people in How did you get out? How did I? Get out. What do you mean get out? Well, you know, you're privy to all this and... Uh, well, I was I was the junior shit kicker okay. on the on the on the job. I was only on it for a couple of days, yeah. and I think in the scheme of things, we our bank was just one small piece of a bigger jigsaw puzzle, right? And uh, and I think that's I mean, in in someone a couple of people wrote books about the whole collapse of Enron, and I read the book, more books, and they mentioned this lady I was working for who I told my views to they mentioned her by name and made her look pretty bad because they quoted an email she'd sent to her bosses in giving them a report on uh, on the deal and she didn't say to them look this is really dodgy or shifty or shady she or didn't wrong follow through your information no mm. what she did say was that this is actually a great deal and we stand to make x dollars in fees from it do you think she drafted that email what do you what do you mean who else <laughs> what do you mean well do you know sometimes people don't draft they're told to draft oh no no i'm pretty sure that she was a she was a semi-senior position right and one of her bosses said look look at this tell me what the pros and cons of us being involved are and report back to me and basically she reported back with absolute focus on the amount of money that would be made mm. by the bank, mm. therefore her boss, therefore she'd get a cut of it. Got it. Yeah. And that's what her incentive was, that's what her focus was. And me sort of saying, saying this hey, is dodgy, was, was outside her field of vision. Mm. And she wasn't a stupid person. I mean, I don't think in the end she really needed me to point it out to her. Mm. However, she was able to sort of willfully, subcon subconsciously put those sort of things aside and uh, you didn't notice a black SUV following you around or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, still that there. Yeah. Um, so, all right, yeah, so that's pretty, that fuck, that's crazy. Yeah, interesting, right? Mm. So then, all right, pause, we want a cup of tea? Yep. Yeah. All right, we are back, Graham's back, we've got a cup of tea, and we're ready to go on. Um, all right, where were you? You were uncovering the Emron. Yeah. And I just wanted to take this chance to clarify. We had a couple of text messages come in from listeners. Mm. Uh, one or two asked about Enron. Mm. And uh, for those who... N-E-N? E-N-R-O-N. -E -N. Mm. Enron. 
Enron was a corporation that existed in uh, sort of late 90s, early 2000s. And they're one of the pioneers of energy trading markets, uh, which I think we have here in Australia now, but back in the day. What's our name? What's our name? What's the, what's the equivalent? Here? Mm-hmm. I actually don't know. Mm. Well, I, I guess when I say we have it here, we have sort of um, regulated markets where energy is bought and sold and you have all these companies calling you up at all hours trying to get you to change their company. Mm. Um, so you see it with foreign companies as well. Yeah. So it's just sort of that un, un, you know, deregulated approach to, yep. to utility markets. Yep. And Enron was at the forefront of that occurring in the US back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did, apparently they did a lot of very creative, productive things. But at the same time, the entire company was also a web of fraud. And uh, in terms of what they're up to, defrauding the stock market. And then a lot of their employees were just pilfering cash out the back door while they're at it. Mm-hmm. And when it blew up in 2002, 2003, it was a huge scandal across the US because it was such a big company and it was a huge donor to George Bush and blah, blah, blah. And a lot of people went to jail over it. Are they still there now? Uh, no, nah, for these sort of crimes, they, you tend to get eight to 12 years. Do they go to like big time security jails as well? Like with the fucking bad boys or no? I don't know. Don't know. White collar crimes, that they can't, can they? Depends. You would th- you'd think that they should, but... Well, the main guy, who was the chairman, I think, yeah. he, his name is Ken Lay, and he'd been a huge donor and personal friend of the Bush family. Mm-hmm. So he was convicted and was facing multiple years in jail, and you'd have to think with you know your buddy being president, they might at least through back channels make sure you're somewhat safe in some prison farm. Mm. Um, but then the fucker died before his, his appeal was heard and under US law... In jail? No, no. He was free pending the appeal mm-hmm. being heard. And under the law of the land... If How did he die? Sorry. Apparently natural causes. Okay. Just curious. Yep. But you never know. Mm-hmm. But the, the benefit of dying while his case was under appeal was that a dead man cannot face his accusers and he was therefore acquitted. <laughs> Posthumously. sneaky fucker Mm. (laughs) Um, all right so then all right you so you that there we go there's enron enron um so you worked for this company that couple years the bank yep which bank which bank the commonwealth bank (laughs) now it's a swiss bank oh okay really how fancy fancy Mm. And uh, then, uh, then after that, the next chapter of my adventure in New York was uh, after a couple of years of banking, working pretty hard, too hard for too long. The siren song of the of the screen beckoned. Yeah. And I went off to acting school. Now hold on. So you're working. When when are the first thoughts starting to permeate? That you're working in the corporate world, doing quite well, having a good old time in New York. Yep. You know, disclosing multinational corporations. <laughs> um, when was the first seed? What was the first thought that, oh, fuck, actually, I'm not doing what I want to be doing? Um, I don't have a clear answer in my own head to that question. I do know that 
as hard a work, as hard a job as it was, it was good fun. It was actually good fun. It was pretty exciting. And it was wearing, though. A lot of things happened around that time. Mm. You know, September 11 happened. Oh, okay. So, what? hold on. You were working for the banks during the September 11? Yep. I cannot yep. dig in there. What? Where were you when that happened? Uh, so, on the day when it happened, um, I remember the day very clearly, as you would. <laughs> I, got, I got up in the morning mm. and I was out of shirts. So, I walked around the corner. Where were you living at this point? In Chelsea. Yeah, so pretty... West- Pretty close. Pretty close, yep. Chelsea is sort of mm. lower, mid-lower Manhattan, sort of halfway between Times Square and downtown, mm. for those who are not familiar. And uh, I went around the corner to the cleaners, and the little the lady who was running the store gave my shirts and was sort of gesticulating and speaking in a foreign tongue as she looked at the television screen in the corner. And I looked at that sort of you know, little box TV, could see something going on, but could understand what she was saying. So I thought, all right, see ya. Go <laughs> home. You, didn't, you couldn't see the towers or anything? Maybe I could. Maybe I could. In fact, I probably did. But I do know, if not at that time, but my initial impression was that a small plane, say maybe a little Cessna of some sort, had crashed into the building. Okay, yeah. So obviously an incident and obviously a, a tragedy of some scale, but very not a whole lot. Not what it is today, yeah. yeah. So I went home, got changed, put on the TV at home, and then saw it was actually more significant than that. Um, exactly how significant, again, it was not clear, but also I think... Had Tower 2 been hit at this point? No. Uh-huh. But also, even if the television showed, because they had it on live feed, even if the television was showing significant damage, at the same time, I think, as everyone in the city, no one really quite wanted to grasp what was going on. So, so you're still thinking, I've got to get to work? Yeah, I was going to work. Mm. So I walked, as I walked to work, I could walk to work, it was probably a 10-minute walk across town, crossing all the avenues, and the avenues run top to bottom of the city. So every time I crossed an avenue, I'd look down, I'd sort of see smoke, towers, and lots of people stopped looking downwards. So over the course of 10 minutes, there was sort of each avenue, there'd be more and more people looking, and I would see, it was like, shit, there's something serious going on. And by the time I got to work, I was... It was very clear that this was a major incident. And I went to work, and the building I worked in was on 23rd Street, and it was a mid-sized building, but it was the first building of any size between downtown, where it was all happening, so financial district, and the rest of the, the island. So I went up in the building, and as I walked onto our floor, which was a higher floor in the building, there were sort of seven or eight of my colleagues who were just standing to the glass in dead, somber silence, looking. And as I joined them, with this very clear high view, we could see that this was a really, a really serious situation. Uh, one of the towers, at this stage, both towers had been hit. The mm. second tower had been hit, I think, as I was going up in the elevator. Mm-hmm. And both were in huge, huge blocks of smoke. Smoke was uh, billowing out of them. Now, we've all seen the images. Yeah, but so in that office where you were looking, everyone was just dead silent against the window. Dead, stony silent. Absolute shock, horror. Um, one of my mates, his missus was working down there mm. in one of the buildings, in or ne- next to one of the buildings. Another colleague, her husband, had an office on the top floor of one of the buildings, and she was, she had walked back to her office, was sitting there, absolute dumbstruck. 
Um, and we just sort of, all of us, for the next however long it took, we just sat there not knowing what to say, not knowing what to do. Um, Did she lose her husband? Well, no, she didn't. Oh. And it's a sort of a one, one sort of nice spot in the whole thing. About three hours later, after everything had happened. So did you saw them fall? Yeah. And yeah. And it was one of the one of the oh, interesting not interesting, it was horrific, but the first tower fell. Even after the first tower fell, I was convinced the second tower would not fall. There's no logical, rational basis for that expectation. It was just my brain having difficulty wrapping itself around what was occurring in front of my eyes. And then when it did happen, when that wishful thinking, that sort of, you know, I wanted to sleep well at night and I couldn't, my brain didn't want to go there. When it happened, that was obviously shattered. Um, it was shattered. I don't remember how I feel. It was just a whole, a whole lot of numbness. <laughs> yeah. Now, oh man, I, you saw them fall. Did it look natural you didn't expect the tower to fall they're not designed to fall yeah I well, first, first of all mm. I mean I know where you're going you know that I know where you're going I don't believe there's any I don't believe mm. and that's, it is a belief mm. I don't believe there was anything untoward in terms of explosives and whatnot mm -hmm. in that building that being said i do understand where you're coming from because when they did fall and again everybody's seen the footage but to my naked eye at the time and i don't think i've ever re-watched any of the videos in the falling since i mean i, I do in passing because they seem to be played up yeah. all the time but i've never actually gone back and focused on it since but when they fell to my naked eye it did appear that from the level of impact, there was a significant um, ex ex expulsion of dust at that level. And there almost seems to be a moment, a split second before then the collapse happened. So for those who say, look, that's obviously an explosion occurred and then that precipitated the fall. I mean, I, I get why people say that. I saw it, but in my mind, you know, you've got to... Well, you can't know. Who knows? It's a difficult one. Yeah. All I know is, all I know is, I've read enough about the CIA, CIA and their, their failures are more publicised than their successes, so I grant them that much, but the failures have been so... <laughs> such a fucking keystone cops scenarios that I can't, I can't give enough credit to organise the destruction of those towers. I can't believe they could do it and keep it quiet. A, I don't think they could do it. B, except if they threw a missile, shot a missile at it. But B, if they could do it, I can't believe they'd be able to keep it quiet. But again, I agree, that's just a belief, so. Only, I didn't expect this to come down this road at all. Mm. And um, only reason I poked then was because I saw a documentary the other day that was unearthing a bunch of conspiracy mm. proven to be true cock-ups of the cia yes one of them was they wanted an excuse a while ago to go to uh, it was like 20 years before september 11 they wanted an excuse to go to war with cuba yeah 
and they had a plan of getting some Cuban planes and bombing some American cities. Right. And um, they went co- comprehensively into that plan, mm. and that plan was very similar mm. to the plan that actually came to fruition on that day. Yeah. And coincidence or not, it just made me go, this one's been in the pipeline a while. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. Well, no, I, I, I believe that. And there's, there's, there's a... Has that, has that theory ever been admitted by anybody in power in America? Oh, yeah, no, it's proven. It's to be pr- true. People oh, came out, true. spoke about it. Okay. You look it up, there's documentation. It's mm. all just like a kerfuffled, foiled. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I accept that. And there's and, and another, another story, and I believe this has again been, it's been conceded by American government, that the, the Americans' entry or escalation of their involvement in the Vietnam War was... was was uh, driven by a catalyst where an American Navy ship had allegedly been attacked by a North Vietnamese ship mm. in the Bay of Something. And apparently it was all just a, a furphy designed to give the American government an excuse to bring the nation into war. Same thing, they talked about that as well, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so we digress. Um, that is crazy. That, uh, that, that I just that have that haunting silence of you guys standing against that window. Yeah. Can, can I share that one nice moment in a pretty awful day please the the lady who worked with me whose husband had the office on the top floor of the tower one of the towers she sort of sat there for hours not knowing his fate and fearing the worst and i was standing by the elevator a couple hours later and the elevator opened and who did i see covered in dust from head to toe her husband no way. Mm. Oh, my God. Yeah. He came to her. He came to her. And she was just buckled up in the office. Buckled up in the office. <laughs> Gave the guy the biggest buck. That is a movie. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. He, 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 he uh, all, most of his colleagues were lost. And he only survived because he was minutes late to work that day. And he had actually walked in the foyer downstairs. As he walked in, the impact happened, and he walked out. My cousin's in America. He, uh, his wife was in 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 Tower Two. Um, Your cousin's wife. Yeah, yeah. Remember Marky? Yeah. His brother's wife. Yeah. She was in Tower Two, and. How did it go down? They saw it and everyone was told to stay put. Right. Everyone was th- came over the loud that everyone stays put, no one moves, blah, 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 blah. And so she's like, all right, well, we stay. And she had a, uh, what do you call it? Like a, a, you know, an assistant, her assistant, personal assistant was like, kept tugging at her, we're, we're fucking, we're out. We're, we're getting out of here. And she's like, no, 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 we stay, we stay. This is... Mm. If I'm, get, I'm not doing the story justice, but this is how. Anyway, she was convinced to leave. She left, and she was the only person to survive on the floor. And, when the, and they left just before it hit. Jesus. On the second one, yeah. I mean, fuck. Everybody's probably got a story similar, but yeah. it really, yeah. I think it was pretty heavy duty there for a while. As you can only imagine, you can't even conjure up what that. I mean, you you were there. I mean, but mm. anyway. Um, 
It's heavy stuff. Heavy stuff. So, all right, let's go back. So, in all this, you've decided you've had enough. Yeah? Yeah. Sorry. That's okay. Back. <laughs> all right, good. <laughs> Sorry, man. Thanks for going down there. Far out. All right. Um, amongst all this, you've decided you've had enough of the, the, the life. Right. Yes. And the creative yearning is calling. Well, I think the, yearn, the, the, the desire to do something a little different was calling. Mm. And there's one thing about life, and I think particularly about New York, is the whole thing is an experience. And my experience was great up to that point, but it was very, it had sort of a mono focus in many ways. So this was saying, all right, what's, what's another adventure with a different sort of focus, a different ag- angle for a while, and maybe less hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so that's, that, was, that was... I've been doing some, doing some sort of Sunday morning acting workshops for a laugh for about six months. Okay, yeah, and hold on. Weren't you in a, some sort of a magazine? Oh, that comes later. Oh, does it? Yes. Yeah, so All right, keep going then. We'll get there. All right. <laughs> Sorry, I just didn't want to make sure I didn't gloss over anything. Uh, yeah. So you're looking for a change of pace. Change of pace, change of style. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the, the neighbourhood playhouse school of the theatre mm. beckoned. Mm. And uh, and. Uh, so what happened there? You, you went? Did you have to go and do a monologue? Did you have to do? What did you have to do there? get in you know what I, I got some references from a couple of acting coaches that I was doing my sort of yeah irregular work with mm-hmm. and uh, I think that was enough yeah I think that was enough also miss I met miss Cole the ballet teacher mm. and we took an immediate liking to each other oh really that helped as well y- yeah <laughs> amazing you know, woman yeah she was there yeah. Her, wasn't her husband in a, a world war two Fighter, fighter, pilot? Yeah, but I heard that from you. I didn't actually oh, hear that. Yeah, yeah, he was. Anyway, yeah, so then you, so you went to the Neighbourhood Playhouse mm-hmm. and you studied for the first, you did the two years? Did a two-year program, studied the first year with, uh, with uh, Ron Stetson. Yeah, yeah. I, I keep wanting to say Rob Stanton. Why? Because Meisner wrote a book, or one of his students wrote, ghosted the book for him, and they talked about a teaching assistant to Meisner. And the, uh, the teaching assistant in the book was named Rob Stanton. Oh, as a, an alias. As an alias to protect the identity of the not-so-innocent. Oh, really? <laughs> so, Rob Stanton mm. was a less-than-creative way to hide Ron Stetson's identity. Ron Stetson, yes. Um, so, and that is a two-year conservatory, but you have to be invited back to the second year. So you obviously had some chops. I had some chops, I like to think so. Yeah. I like to think the powers that be thought so. Yeah. So I went back for the second year with uh, Sir Pinter. Richard Pinter. Sir Richard Pinter. He's an extraordinary man, isn't he? Got one of the most beautiful men I've ever met in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing, amazing source of creativity, energy, and humanity. Well put, well put. What a guy. Yeah. What a moustache. <laughs> <laughs> so, t- t- this, this is interesting because 
John and I have parallel experiences at this school because John was there a couple of years after I was mm. and had the same teachers that I did. So, yeah, I, I could, I think John would actually do a better job of explaining as he just did describing Richard. So I might rest my vocal cords and let John. No, 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 because I want to know about your experience. This is your, this is, uh, I want to know about Graham and this is your experience through the Neighbourhood Playhouse. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what was interesting for me, which I think will be different to your experience. You obviously have a more accomplished acting experience before you got to the Playhouse than I did. And I was coming from a very... One of the things I say about acting is it's a very emotional skill set. Um, or, 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 sorry, even let me rephrase that. It's a more emotional skill set. To be a good actor, you've got to have an intellect and an emotion and they've got to work together very well and the one cannot dominate the other but more importantly the intellect cannot dominate the emotion and coming from the background that I had starting at commerce at Melbourne Uni years before I've been down a pathway which always kept the emotion in check and gave the intellect more rain so to come into an acting an immersive acting environment without a with that particular experience it certainly was a challenge to sort of it's almost to speak another language a language of the of the heart or the mind or the body um, to the point where as these to try and explain these for an acting teacher trying to explain or share these concepts with a student it's not even a language. It's an alien. Talking concept. about your body as an instrument. Yeah. Well, not the body. The, the heart is an instrument. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Well, the mind's a whore, and you listen to the heart, and it's two different things. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. So, so it was, it was, it was, it was good fun. But at the same time, as saying it, saying good fun is obviously a throwaway line. It was a great experience, but yeah. it was an experience even to be asked these questions and be challenged with these concepts of head and heart and, you know. It's so shaped I, you from there on? I, I, it's, it's definitely been a shaper for me. I mean, I've still got a long way to go. Ask any girl I've dated. I'm a bit of an emotional backwater. But, <laughs> but, uh, but to actually be exposed to those sort of ways of thinking is, you know, it's truly a good experience. Yeah. Great experience. Yeah, yeah. And what about the Alexander technique? Did you get a lot from that? Yes, I did. I did. Um, I, for me though, I know, I know, you know, from what you told me before, and even the frame of your question, I know you got more out of it than I did. For me, in terms of, I look at back at the meditation center that we went to in New York that I took you along to, and you went to Dharma punks. Dharma punks. Yeah. In terms of. And maybe I'm leading on from the sort of the heart and the mind and the interaction. Dharma punks for me actually brought together what I learned in acting school. It actually made me, that for me was a, a channel that, that I could go down, that I could watch and make sense of everything that acting school and all the parts within it had been trying to say. It was almost like the... The, the spiritual element. Uh, connecting the heart yeah no I wouldn't even say spiritual because I, I sort of way I, the, what my experience of Dharma Punks was, was I mean I know spiritual means different things mm -hmm. um, there was a reconciliation 
of the mind and the heart and the manner in which Dharma punks sought to to achieve that reconciliation for me made a lot of sense and it actually a lot of the pieces that have been presented to me in the acting school experience Dharma punks and their approach was, was, was a missing added a missing part of the piece of the jigsaw added some glue added mm. something which actually made it all make a bit more sense awesome yeah what was it was his name Josh Josh Corder that's right and he was covered in head to toe from tats yeah it was awesome he, 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 in terms of the reverence that which we, we hold Richard Pinter, yeah. for me, Josh Corder. Holds that same reverence. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. He's available on podcast viewers. Is he really? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And what about Noah? Because he had another guy that they worked together called Noah who went to LA. And yeah. He, yeah. Yeah, I don't he know. He started much. at Noah. Noah was the founder, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know much about Noah. Did you see Noah? When you're in LA, I went to a couple of the meditations back. Um, that didn't have the same. I don't know. Yeah, it was just different. You know, New York had something. Yes. No, no, I didn't grab me the same way Josh did. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. Okay. Cool. Okay. So then, so then, so then, what was um, what did, what was your what was your graduating play? something but you rocked it (laughs) (laughs) shit (laughs) shit what was my graduating play what was yours um oh good see now I feel less guilty for getting my graduating play no um bird boot and uh yeah alright I'm not gonna get it either I had two though Remember I the remember, Stetson, to see it. Sweat, Stetson's one was an original one. Anyway, look, let's keep going. Uh, <laughs> Palm Sunday, what the hell was it? Anyway, look, yeah. So then you left the playhouse. Yeah. That was a long time ago, I have to just say that. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Um, left the playhouse. Yeah. It was, it was difficult. It was difficult to, to leave an environment which was a sort of immersive full-time program and face the reality of being a working actor and the uncertainty and the lack of structure within that career which I had not experienced before acting school didn't I was warned about it in fact Stetson had always said listen kiddos if any of you have a plan B your acting career is fucked before it starts And what he meant by that, sorry if it was not obvious, is you are going to go through such troughs. I'm not telling John this. John knows what it means. You're going to go through such troughs and peaks and troughs and peaks before you get to a, anything like a sustained peak, which probably doesn't exist anyway, that your commitment to the craft will be tested. And if you have an out, a plan B, a career, an idea of something else you might want to do, you'll be so tested that that plan B will become like the siren song. It'll be something you cannot resist. Mm. And I think for me that as I started knocking on doors in New York City, it's like, holy shit. And, and having lots of fun, you know, but 
struggling with it the way you know it's the nature of the craft nature of the vocation um i got to a point where i (laughs) called up some old colleagues and said oh shit i need a job and uh and uh yeah it is man and new york is a really tough place in that creative environment because the city to me is so grinding in itself that uh you know it grinds on you Mm. and if you don't have a support system and you're just getting knocked back and knocked back and you don't have people it's super tough i found that i found it very very difficult especially once leaving school as well yeah 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 but i do remember walking into an audition i don't think he was going for the same thing but i walked into a building for an audition i met him a couple of times actually which is pretty awesome but uh, it really put a little lift in my step i was walking into the same building who was walking out was philip seymour hoffman really yeah and i was like oh yeah yeah that's uh, fucking cool yeah anyway um so back to back to back to the finance gig yeah yeah so i started a friend of mine had a little business that was doing investment, investment management. So I started working for him and uh, he was a small startup business, but good fun. And, uh, and early on, early on, I was, uh, I was uh, maybe a couple of months into this gig and my agent, I had an agent, he'd, he'd been calling up saying, Graham, you've got to go see, see this guy about this, this job. And I was like, oh, no, I've got a job now. I can't do it. And I sort of, my head was full up with these castings. I couldn't do it anymore. But Nigel, my agent, he was relentless. Graham, just please go. I said, all right, I'll see if I can go at lunchtime. Okay, good. So I went off to see Joseph. And it wasn't an acting gig. It was a, every, every wannabe actor is a wannabe model. Mm. You do anything to pay the bills. Mm. So I went to see Joseph. Joseph was the fashion director at Playboy magazine. Playboy. Playboy magazine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was a lovely guy. Not Playgirl. No, Playboy. Okay. Playboy. Yeah, yeah. Playboy. Yeah, yeah, I know Playboy. Magazine yeah. we all know and love. Yeah. Well, used to know and love. I don't even know if it exists anymore. I hope so. It's huh? probably online. Online, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Joseph was this campus row, row of tents and a lovely guy. And we walked. I walked into his office and Joseph was putting together crew to go to to do a fashion shoot. And the reason Playboy was doing a fashion shoot is because magazines like FHM and Ralph and whatever they are, back in this time frame, 2005, 2004, Playboy's been killed by these new men's magazines. And they had to sort of take a response and the response was to start doing what these magazines are doing, hence do a fashion shoot. So he's putting together the crew to do this and uh, I walked in there and there's a sort of a, a game that's played in New York where it probably happens here too, but it was, it's sort of in New York as writ large where the gay dude who runs the fashion shoot will get all these cute young guys come in and he'll sort of, you know, they'll be his playthings. So I'm not saying anything actually physically happens, but he's going to enjoy their company, enjoy their deference, enjoy being the man in charge. Like muses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I walked in and I knew, <laughs> I knew the game that these guys play and I was sort of over it. But even though that was his game, he, wasn't, he was still, seemed to be a pleasant enough guy. 
an affable person. So I sat down and said, g'day and had a chat. And pretty soon he realized that I wasn't on the same wavelength that he was probably expecting or what he was accustomed to. And we started talking about, you know, who are you? What do you do? You know, getting to know each other. And I said, oh, well, you know, I only found time to come down here because I have a job and what do you do? Blah, blah, blah. I said, oh, well, I've had some, some dealings at a distance with Playboy Corporation because the bank I used to work for did the bond issue for you guys back in the day and my friend did this and that did and Joseph, Joseph sort of his jaw hit the floor he just didn't expect any conversation along these lines right 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 yeah but nonetheless he enjoyed it and we chatted for about an hour and uh, he's a, a great guy and uh, at the end of it I said well thanks Joseph good on you mate I'll go back to work and he said well hold on well, listen are you going to come and do the job with us I said Shit, if you're, if you're offering, of course I will. He said, great. He said, all right, good. Well, what we're doing is we're going we're gonna to go to Tahiti. <laughs> I said, fucking hell. Well, I've got to get time off work, but presuming I can, I'm, I'm definitely coming. Yeah. He's like, all right, call me. Call me later. I said, all right. So I went back to the, to the, to the office. I walked in there and said to the guys, I said, listen, I've got good news and bad news. I said, shit, shit. What's the bad news? I said, bad news is I need 10 days off work. All right, shit, what's the good news? I said, I'm going to Tahiti with Playboy magazine. <laughs> and you went? And I went. And so you, have you got, have you got any visuals of this? You got photos? I've got the magazine. Shut up. Yeah. I'm using it for the center bit for this interview. <laughs> okay. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So what were you doing there? Did you go there with Playboy girl models? Well, no, it was, it, was, it was not a nudie shoot. It was no. a fashion shoot. Okay. So we went there with a crew of about 20 people. It was huge. We like, we'd landed and we're like special VIP treatment in the airport. So and was Hugh Hefner there? Hugh wasn't there. Uh-huh. Hugh was at the mansion. Yeah. <laughs> um, there were, there were three, three guys who were the sort of, you know, we were the cast. There was a girl, so she was sort of to make it, I don't know, soften the visuals and then... About 15 people, photographers, makeup, hair, hangers-on, stylists, whatever. All awesome crew. In fact, what this fellow Joseph was doing in spending an hour chatting to me and what he did amongst the rest of the crew is he made sure everybody there were people that he was going to have, were good people he was going to have fun with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so we had 10 days at one of those Bora Bora resorts with the rooms over the lagoon. Um, it was pretty fancy and you know the prince of spain was honeymooning down the down the road in the same resort it was oh off the gosh. scale <laughs> anyway so we're there for i forget it was eight days or ten days so it was eight days for the first seven days all we did was party like rock stars at the fanciest resort i've ever been to no one pulled out a camera nobody did anything and then on the last day <laughs> Yeah. The night before the last day, Joseph and the photographer are having a chat. I'm like, oh, shit, I hope the weather's all right tomorrow. Yeah, I think it'll be all right. The last day, we got up at six, shot all day. <laughs> Done. Really? And so what was the vibe? Like, what do they have you doing? For the shoot? Yeah. Oh, well, you'll see the photos, but we're on a boat. We're on a, under a palm tree. We're under this, that. So you and other couples, did you have a fake girlfriend or is it like, you know? Yeah, with the... the well, there's only one girl, one girl, other girl in the shoot. Yeah. So three dudes to shoot. One of the dudes was a friend of mine. Mm. So just by random chance. Oh so, my God. And he was a great dude. Yeah. Good friend. So 
It was just you nice. couldn't script it. Couldn't script it. It was wonderful. Wonderful. Shit. How good. So that ended up in a Playboy magazine. Yeah. And it was nine days of just getting it on and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good, great man. Um, yeah, right. How are we going for time? Yeah, we? we're pretty. We're pretty much there. We're gonna have to get you back for for the for the next half. <laughs> um. Anything else you want to get out real quick? Ah, uh, that was I, a really good little story there. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, it's one of my proudest moments. Yeah, that's bloody hell. Um, I wanted to talk. I made some notes here before we start, as we were talking. Oh, let's to, see what your notes say. What are your notes? Well, say? it might have to be for next time. But All right. I sort of wanted to ask you. Oh, you want because it's something you and I have discussed okay. offline a lot. Yes, and I think we mentioned it in the first podcast. It's, it's just like as a society, where are we? Where are we going? What are some of the principles and thoughts that we should have, or we don't have, or we might have? That small, might be small question. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then the other. So that's probably for next time. But yeah. for now, I want to ask you: Whatever happened to that two and a half thousand dollars spending fine you got? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it disappeared. With effort or no, I, it, it turned out it was a um, car is in a company name. Oh, your your yeah okay yeah. So um, so if, what happened is you you used to just pay a six hundred dollar excess if you were driving a company car and you didn't want to lose any points. It was a loophole. Oh. So usually you could pay a six hundred dollar fine keep your points, keep your license. I see. They cottoned onto it and they jacked that price up to two grand gotcha. and they went, no one's going to pay two grand. No company's going to... Or, and I also think companies were dodging, mm. like people like, I don't, wasn't driving, I don't know who, yeah. it was too much, but for two grand it makes people, we want to fucking know who was driving. Yes. So when I put my name on it, sent it back with a question mark, yep. it came back $185. Gotcha. And how many points? I didn't look. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I still haven't paid it. Oh, shit. Yeah, I will. I've got to the end of the month. They'll find you if you don't. 555. 555. All right. Graham, anything else on that note pad there you've got there? No, just extensions of that, that uh, topic that we'll get to next time. Thank you so much for that chat. Cheers, mate. Everybody knows this is just a game we play. Right, there you have it. There it is. There's the conversation with the grey man. Um, <laughs> fucking hell, what a life, huh? What a life. Uh, pretty awesome, pretty awesome uh, stuff there. Anyway, uh, lots to chew on, lots to chew on. Big week ahead, big week ahead. What a world we live in today, you know, like travel, travel. My old man leaves today, probably should give him a call. Him and my stepmom off to Europe for a month. Um, that's nice. Uh, my brother leaves to go back to Manila, Manila tomorrow, where he lives, and and I don't. This is like no big deal these days. Everybody just flies around and doing their thing, and no one seems to bat an eyelid. Once upon a time, it was a big deal when somebody went overseas. You know, <laughs> it's just not anymore. It's just not. I read an article last night that was saying um, how how the dark side of travel, the dark side. And that their argument was is if you travel too much, then you lose touch with the reality of the situation of home. Sure, yeah. But 
like look at all the positives expanding horizons seeing how different governments do things how different people do things how different communities do things uh, different foods different thoughts different i mean what an article just dripping in fear uh yeah anyway that article didn't resonate with resonate with me too much if you're going traveling this week have a great time have an awesome time get out there amongst the world go and meet some new people experience some 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 new points of view you know broaden the horizon uh anyway i don't know where that came from hope you enjoyed that uh hope you enjoyed that conversation um and uh yeah i'm not gonna waffle on anymore i'm done i'm out i'm out i'm out adios thanks for listening once again i really appreciate it if you've come this far you are a true stallion um is that sexist stallion because girls don't want to be stallions anyway whatever i didn't mean it like that you know true philly true philly all right i'm out ciao the same as you